I don't want a pickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle Welcome everybody, this is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode number 67. We are coming to you from our headquarters here in northern Colorado, where we had another shitty day of weather. I think our intro is officially changed there. Going out to over 40-something countries worldwide, I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Let's talk bikes. Although, before that, I want to say something really quick at the beginning of this episode. I included something in the last episode, or said something on the last episode, that was a dickhead move, but I was up really late editing, and it somehow got past me. I whilst trying to make a stupid point that I didn't need to use not one, but two logical fallacies begging a question and a straw man and somehow pulled the misfits into it saying that they don't have respect for new writers. And after listening back to this episode and realizing what I said, I I'm embarrassed. Now this will drop at the same day as the misfits next episode. And I'm willing to bet that they are way too classy to say anything about it. But just here on record, I'm retracting that. It was not only was it an asshole move, it's demonstrably not true, seeing as they help people fix their first bikes and provide gear for new riders. So it's an insane premise that they wouldn't respect new riders. Also, they're just not that kind of people. And yeah. So that out of the way, <laughs> hopefully that's the end of it. I'm, if for some reason they do mention it, it must mean that we're just catching them on a bad on a bad day because I'm the asshole. They're the classy people. Okay, so that out of the way, table of contents for this episode. We are going to do emails first, then our best worst bike, then a little how to sound like you know what you're talking about, and then we are going to talk to the good folks at Helite about these dandy new Helite Turtle 2 vests that we have in our possession, the new model. But we'll save that till the end when we've got someone more knowledgeable than us about these little contraptions that we're wearing. Okay, so emails, right? Let's go. Let's go. What's our first one? Are we now going to do best worst bike first? Stick with the format. Uh, I feel like the best worst bike is going to naturally flow into our how to sound like we know what you're talking about. Oh, is that a or spoiler? we can do best worst first. Let's do best worst first. I'm liking the format. Okay. All right. In that case, then I need to roll into our disclaimer. So, okay. So our usual disclaimer for best worst bike in the world this week. Here's how it works. Each week, means we each pick a different motorcycle. We don't know what the other person has chosen. Each to be framed as the best or worst bike in the whole world for this week. If you disagree, direct your emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com and we'll just stroke your ego. We'll make it all better for you. I promise. Or tell us whatever else is going on with your life. Don't take it too seriously because it's really just a fun way to look at two motorcycles you might not normally take a second look at. And also, as I'm staring at the back of this can of Bud Light, it lists as ingredients, water, corn syrup, and this weird chemical called There's No Crying in Motorcycles. So, with that, 
Swiggy, you have worst bike in the world this week, right? I do. Okay. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is? The Yamaha Fashino. We've been on quite a scooter kick recently. We have. I'm not familiar with this. So this is a not Southeast Asian, but an it looks like Indi- a Euro model. No. Indian? Indian. Ooh, okay. So, you know, we've always thought, how did Royal Enfield become one of the biggest motorcycle manufacturers in the world? so quickly and especially considering what they were putting out you know pre-2010 right it just seemed like well this this is all kind of crazy because these are not all that impressive in terms of bike but if you look at what yamaha and honda and other big companies are putting out in india you realize if they're putting out in the u.s what they're putting out in india it's no wonder they are the absolute cream of the crop. So the Yamaha Fashino is a Japanese scooter masquerading as an Italian bike. Very plainly, just from the aesthetics. And that's really all this bike is offering. Well, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Because the Honda Metropolitan is a Japanese bike masquerading as a little bit of an Italian bike sort of thing. It's going for a very 60s throwback look. This is masquerading as a modern Vespa. It's like modern Italian scooter styling. So you might be tricked into thinking you're getting all the goodies that come with a modern Vespa. Right. Which is quite a lot these days. Now, this bike, we'll we'll say up front, costs anywhere between about $800 and $900 equivalent in rupees, which, if you adjust for cost of living and purchasing power, is again about the price of a Grom here in Denver right now. Oh. So for... And this is a 50cc or 49 or whatever? This is a 110. However, it's making about 6.4 horsepower. What? Well, shall I rail off the list of incredible stats and specs on this bike? (laughs) Blow my mind. Next, you're going to tell me it's two-stroke as well. It's a 110 still only making that being two-stroke. Oh, it's it's got a... An amazing blue core engine, 113 cc's, air-cooled, with a CVT transmission, carbureted, and boasts a throttle position sensor. Ooh, okay. With its amazing 7 brake horsepower and 8.1 newton meters of torque. Eight. That's not foot pounds, that's Newton meters. Yes, yeah, so that's what, like five and a half, six foot pounds? Maybe six and a half, yes. Okay. So, what size are the wheels? Uh, the wheels are, 
you know, it's really hard to find stats on this. Okay. So basically what we're looking at is the complete opposite of the Taiwan, Thailand, Singapore, you know, just general Southeast Asian situation where even in translation, this is a terrible value. Right. Also, this is possibly the first bike I have ever come across and bothered to look at the stats to find out that it was both a linked braking system and front and rear drum. (laughs) Why bother? (laughs) Right. Uh, Uh, Does it have any storage? I mean, it's got to have something going for it. This is Yamaha. It does have 21 liters of storage under the seat. So it does have that. Okay. And it is 220 pounds, but only because there's literally nothing to this machine. Right. Yeah. How could it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, is it is it something like it's only getting six horsepower or seven horsepower because it's like seven and a half to one compression? So this motor is going to run forever. Is there some angle like that? I couldn't find anything on that. It's really hard to find specs for for something like this but it doesn't even make as good fuel economy as a grom does i want to talk about this color that it's in it's a weird gold with some black accents and i feel like this is the kind of scooter you would see in what would pass as still only second rate as a rap video in india yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's really cheap yet gaudy at the same time <laughs> oh sorry uh yeah they are 10 inch wheels okay it, uh, for a second they looked like they might have been even smaller i mean 10 inches standard but i was like are we okay. dealing with eights like what's going on uh, so some additional uh looking at the features i just want to list these off real quick in terms of what it does what it lists as a feature signifying it as premium and what it explicitly says it doesn't have oh it lists anti-features that's a new one so it does have a stylish meter console so there's a gauge of some description yes okay it has a 3d logo so it's got an emblem badge, not just a sticker. Yes. It has a footboard, which is kind of impossible not to have. Uh, I guess it could just be a single like bone frame rather than a monocoque design, right? This is true. It does have a, a convenient hook to hang your groceries on between your legs. Okay. Which is uh, nice. But not exactly a premium feature. Yeah, I don't know if that's where all your money's going on this. It does have the kind of iconic Vespa underseat storage unit, which is 21 liters, which is good. It's got a big seat, but who knows what that shit's yeah. made out of. And then, yeah, it's got the blue core engine, which apparently is hot shit. I'm not all that convinced. Yeah. So what doesn't it have? It does not have a tachometer. It neither has a fuel gauge or a fuel warning light. 
What? It doesn't have a low oil pressure indicator. Huh. Batter, no low battery indicator will give them a pass on. Most things don't really have that. It doesn't have... What are you talking about most things don't... Re- yes, most things have that. You just don't notice because you haven't had a battery completely die on you in a long time. I mean, you've had to replace batteries, but just to the... Sorry, you haven't had a charging system fail on you in a really long time. You've had batteries, but everything has a battery light when it stops getting charged. Yes. Okay, that's fair. Uh, It doesn't have an engine kill switch. Huh. Or a clock or a trip meter. Uh, Let's go back to the kill switch. We're talking about 30 cents there. That is simply just an inline switch with the hot wire to the battery. That's all that is. Yeah. Apparently, that's a premium feature. I mean, we're talking like 30 cents US. Yeah. Which, I mean, so that that might work up to the equivalent of like five bucks Indian tops. I mean, not even that much, but like a dollar or something there, so... Give them the benefit of the doubt that we're talking 30 cents US in cost to do this. Like we're talking about what would be the, the difference of buying a Grom for $3,600 or $3,605. Yes. This is disgusting. And what the- here's something it does have, but that they have listed as a feature. Okay. And I think it's telling that this is listed as a feature turn signals. Wow. This is I I'm I shit you not. This is listed. Now doesn't as India a do this only makes sense if India does some insane import tax. They must, right? Oh, they absolutely do. So that's why someone as reputable and awesome as Yamaha would have to make something so stripped down and budget because it's gonna get marked up at increasing rates the more it costs the more it that that's on it the more everything so it has to be the worst vehicle ever just to be able to be sold in the indian market or else no one else no one can afford it yes so we can't really blame yamaha for creating something terrible like with the tri-city but it still doesn't help that this is a fucking pathetic excuse for a vehicle because right. clearly the Indian market demands more. Royal Enfield is supplying it, and they are buying it in world record numbers. It's not the Indian government's fault. Well, sorry, it's the Indian government's fault. It's not the Indian people's fault. It is not Yamaha's fault. Correct. Okay. That, this was really confusing me until I, I remembered that fucking import tax angle. Like, India is really weird about this one. It's like Brazil. They, they've kind of gone through a whole, like, fucking themselves over era in history. Well, I think, uh, well, India is nowhere near as extreme as Brazil was. Well, and still is. Right. But I don't think it's been a real great thing for them long term. I'm not qualified to talk on this. I, I mean, I know they're experiencing a lot of a lot of growth in their middle class and everything, but I it the Indian dream is still not what the American dream is. Let's put it that way. 
and they've had quite a while to catch up. I, I think there's still quite a bit of corruption and money changing hands. I don't think their shit's totally sorted. Because I don't see how this makes sense, right? If this was a great policy, then Yamaha scooters would be dog shit the world over. I don't want to get political with this. I'm just saying this is a rather unique situation right now. Yeah. Everyone else in the world wants cheap, badass scooters. Except India's like, no thanks. We'll take the dog shit, please. Well, I mean, yeah, it's definitely protectionist and... It's making it harder for those to con- to compete, which I guess, I mean, that does explain why Royal Enfield is doing so well, which is if they're the, if they're one of the few players in the game, then they have this kind of protected ecosystem to grow everything out, which in that respect, having a, yeah, this is getting way too political. All I'm saying is this solves the mystery as to why with the product they had, how Royal Enfield grew so quickly and did it off the back of the Indian mark. We'll stop there. Let's we'll we'll keep all the Yeah, uh, yeah, let's keep focusing on how garbage the scooter is because for, forget the reasons why it is terrible. It barely has turn signals and by the way, you said that are they only front cuz I don't notice any turn signals at the rear. Oh, no, yeah, it's literally just on... Just front turn signal. Yeah. (laughs) I argue it's more important for the person behind you to know where you're turning. (laughs) Yeah. It's useful. Oh, wait, no, no, they are on the sides there. Okay. Oh, okay, it's all incorporated in the tailpiece. Okay, they were well hidden in the other picture. All right. Okay. So it has turn signals. It has a grab bar, which looks really flimsy. This is basically a a Zuma with where they swapped out the motor with a two valve, hundred and ten cc motor. They've swapped out the bodywork, and no, what- this isn't a Zuma because that's that's not going to be. That's not going to be proper. That's going to be a single fork on there. Oh, you're right. Oh, no, it does have two. It does have two forks. Well, hold on. Find another picture. We need to know this for certain. Uh, Wrap. Come on. Oh, my God. Even pictures are difficult. By the way, these, these aren't Google images. These are... This is on... This is official branding? Yeah. Wow. These pictures are so low res. Okay, so there are two forks, but actually, I don't know. Is that just a split piece? And there's there's probably still only one compression piece in there. Okay, it's got. Oh, well, considering that you know, realistically, at minimum, two people will be on this, possibly three or four. It doesn't <laughs> surprise me that they made sure it had. At least the two forks up front and the two suspension pieces in the back. That That's one thing you can't really skimp on with these. Uh, okay. So, there's nothing redeeming. And what's with this name? Fosima? It must mean something, I guess. Does it mean anything? I actually don't know. 
that picture you brought up of the mirrors was terrible. The there's like a stock, and then it showed a point where there's the re- the actual mirror was held onto the stem by just a single tiny screw. That I mean, these are not intended to stay on much further past the first week of ownership. They're assuming they're going to get just knocked off in traffic or the owner's going to take them off. They're like, why bother? So if you actually Google Foshino, you will get a mixture of Yamaha Foshino results and various Italian-American restaurants and nothing else Mm. for pages. So the Fashion I thought might have been something Indian, but no, this is just trying to increase the the Vespa facade. Yes. Wow. It's crazy, too, because I feel like India would really be into what Vespa has for current offerings. You know, quietly, Vespas, they're a little pricey, but with the value retention and how reliable they've become and the features that you get on a Vespa these days, they're kind of a good deal long as a long-term buy. In America and Europe, yes. But if you've got import taxes and the non-adjusted price tag is six times what you would pay in the yeah. country, that doesn't make sense. Right, but some of the Royal Enfields are carrying that kind of price tag. They would they would be able to eat into some of that market. Right, but they're coming over to America and Europe, and they're playing into this nostalgia factor, and they're raising the price tag off of that. Yeah, I'm, you I'm just you saying. You can't go the other way. Uh... Well, you're thinking like about these Vespas that are five grand or whatever. There are plenty of quality Vespas that instead of a, let's say, a $2,000 Honda Metropolitan, it's a $2,600 Vespa equivalent. And it really does have another $600 of nice shit on it. And it's worth that $2,600. Right. But can you drop that down to... Five hundred dollars, so that you can sell it for eight hundred dollars in India after the import taxes. Well, that's what I'm saying. If there were no import taxes, India would be really down for what Vespa does. Right. That's what makes this styling a crime because they're trying to imitate something that the market doesn't have an honest shot at attaining for itself anyway. So, if I were to guess, I would say. That literally nothing in this bike, except for the electronics, were made in Japan. Well, actually, no, there's really no electronics. You know, I don't think any of this bike was made in Japan. Oh, yeah, I highly doubt it. Not not a single component. A lot of it was probably made in India to try to get around taxes. Yeah, and then... And it's still taxed because it has the foreign name. <sighs> it's the worst of every world. Yeah, it's... A horrible value proposition. It's a liar. It's the a poor performer. Performance per dollar is terrible. Yeah, it is the worst There's of all There's nothing worlds. original in the design either. Ugh, what a fail. Ugh. 
it it looks like the worst Chinese scooters I've seen. Is what it looks like. That's essentially what it is. So, it it does <sighs> look like it almost it looks very similar to the Tao Tao that I rode recently. Yeah, which also is a funny story. There, it's actually somebody in this apartment complex owned it. Okay, and I think I hit on the majority of uh, scooter scooter bro tropes in about a fifteen minute span. Oh, yeah, yeah, you told me about this briefly. That's right. So I just gave the guy a look where I just turned and looked at him and said, hey, nice scooter. And then he, like, rode up to me and took that as a signal. In which case, I thought, oh, this guy's like, I just got a scooter. This is awesome. I want to share it with everybody. Which is what it started out as. So he pulled up alongside me, and he was only wearing a set of ski goggles. Because, hey, stay legal, bro. Just naked otherwise. You gotta have eye protection. (laughs) So he's like, no, hang on. No, before you take off. It's like, hey, you want to ride it? Yeah. It's like, oh, hang on. Before you take off, stay legal, bro. Put these ski goggles on. (laughs) Take off on the bike. Within about 100 feet, almost rear end a car. Because both the brakes are almost completely shot on this piece of shit scooter. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we, I ride around. I come back to him. Do you think like, he rode it 10 miles, like holding the brake in while he had the throttle on? It's a distinct possibility. Okay. It, yeah. The brakes were no good. If these were the brakes on your pedal bike... You would say, I need to do something about these brakes. This is not okay. (laughs) This is not safe under human power, let alone a motorized vehicle. Okay. I come back up to him as like, this is not okay. "Ah, Yeah, and the conversation went around in a bunch of circles, as you would expect. And then immediately... He tried to sell it to me. <laughs> and then after that, uh, propositioned me for weed. There's a very good chance the scooter was stolen. It's a distinct possibility. I mean, we're in a reasonably nice neighborhood. If he lived here, I don't know if that would make a lot of sense. Because he would have to steal he'd have to steal and sell a lot of scooters. To live around here. And how many bikes have you had stolen from here already? It's not important. Yeah. I think this this was a stolen scooter. It might have been. Okay. Are we ready to move to best bike? I think so. Okay. So, Yamaha for what again? Fashino. Fashino. Worst bike in the world this week. Jury's out on if it's better than a car. Okay. Now... The best bike in the world this week is the 1988 and on to, I think they went to about 92, 94, somewhere in there, Ducati 851. So this beauty, now I recommend looking up the actual, the, the 1987 Ducati 851, because that came in the best paint scheme that this bike ever came in. The red, white, and green. It's 
beautiful. Ooh. Is this a Marvel special? No. Well, okay. So what we're looking at is the first real Ducati like we know them today. You mean proper liquid-cooled air L-twin powerhouse? This is where it begins. This is the first real Ducati superbike. So... You know, like at this time, uh, World Superbike or whatever, we're still doing 750 inline fours, 700s, you know, but with their two cylinder, they got an 851 in there, right? And everybody else was still running carburetors. This is 1987, keep in mind, right? So the, the Jixer is still very new. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at like first generation VFRs. We're, we're looking at that kind of stuff. For superbike racing. Now, Ducati didn't have a bike like this, really. In fact, Ducati didn't have much of anything going. Ducati was in financial ruin. Ducati was fucked. Right. This is when Kajiva bought Ducati. Oh. This motorcycle is so good, it lends a little bit of credibility to the Ducati Indiana. Hold on. Let's <laughs> slow your roll. I'll explain. So Kajiva buys Ducati, who is in financial ruin. I mean, really bad, right? This is like marrying a meth-addicted hooker with tons of gambling debt. Maybe not. Or sorry, not gambling debt. Uh, sorry, with tons of credit card debt. Like, it's not all payable immediately, necessarily, but it's payable soon, and someone's going to be on the hook for it. So Kajiva buys Ducati, and they're like, and, you know, Ducati's like, oh, you're going to, like, assume our debt? Sweet. And Kajiva's like, yeah, but we're also going to try everything we fucking can with the Ducati name to try to make some goddamn money. And if it doesn't, guess who's getting liquidated and thrown away real fast? Now, Kajiva tried a lot of weird shit with the Ducati name, like the Ducati Indiana, some like early like alt- alternative alternative versions of like the Elephant and shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. But this is the one that actually worked. So a bunch of dudes that had been at Ducati whose bosses wouldn't let them do things because Ducati was very traditional before this. And this is when Ducati's kind of became a little less reliable because this is when Ducati started going, we're just going to be kind of some of the most advanced bikes out there, you know, and we'll sacrifice a little reliability for that. We are going to be on the cutting edge and we're going to do this thing and we're going to do it well. So this has, let's go through some specs. Depending on who you talk to, it's hard to say what's being made at the crank, what's being made at the wheel, but various sources say anywhere from 102 horsepower to 93. So no matter what source you're going through, this is probably getting about somewhere around 90 horsepower to the rear wheel, right? Right. Which is modern bike fast, right? Uh, We're getting 52.5 foot pounds of torque at seven and a quarter thousand RPM. So, you know, we're not modern leader bike torque, but significantly more than modern 600 torque. That's for sure. Well, this is also an 850cc bike 
1988. 87, yeah. So we've got uh, 41 mil Marco uh, Marzocchi inverted forks on this. We've got, yeah, monoshock rear suspension with uh, adjustable preload, damping, all that sort of stuff. We've got four piston caliper dual disc front brakes. We've got, let's see what else on this. Um, of course, yeah, liquid cooled. We're running 10.2 compression. We've got Weber electronic fuel injection, with 50 millimeter throttle bodies on this bad boy. We've got all that stuff. It, it, it's got all the things that Harold that sorry this this heralded in a new age of standard for what a top level super bike is yeah I mean how long did it take for everything else to catch up to this like what 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 was the first R six ninety eight when the R six got all of this stuff it's like ninety eight ninety one yeah you mean ninety eight ninety nine. 98 or, 2001 yeah, yeah 98 in there. 99 for the first r6 yeah right exactly and, and and the r1 as well you know like we're talking late 90s it took everyone else to catch up to this standard that's how ahead of the game this bike is yeah it's only 400 pounds which 450 pounds wet so it's a light motherfucker too for the time but we're still talking like tipping the scales at 500 pounds on the Jixer 750s around this time. For as much as people want to talk about like, oh, 400 pounds being heavy, 450 pounds is still light for a lot of 650s today. Yeah. Yeah, this is not a heavy bike. 450. It, it's it's great. So we've got really awesome torque. we got, you know, what's still modern, like fast, horsepower for just a regular street bike right this is still faster than a new uh or let's see like mt07 right this still smokes that this is 1987 and it's only like 100 cc's more we've got yeah that aluminum frame um so it's got all the modern things but we still need to get into the significance of it so first of all the way it looks is not for everybody but you have to realize that this also defined the super bike look in a lot of ways. Look at how all the bodywork on this is molded around the shape of the bike. Jixers at this time was still just an old Isle of Man style fairing just bolted over everything. I mean, it was kind of cut to be more of a specific shape, but it wasn't molded and it certainly didn't run into the rest of the bodywork seamlessly front to back like this does. Now, certainly know. there were other bikes that were doing this at the time, but not dedicated race bikes. Yeah. I don't know of a bike that had the, that, that single downward line across. If you know what I mean, that, yeah, it that downward like the tail points line. to the center of the front wheel yeah yeah now there were now, other the panel, bikes that did now the decals and the panel fit on this bike are atrocious however well, it, you can see what they're going for right the the point is is that 
super bikes didn't have shit like this at the time. Yeah, there were CBR 1000s and other things that had this encompassing bodywork. And there were, yes, Honda Goldwings and things that had nice panel fit things, but not super bikes. Not right. super bikes. But yeah. this did. And that significantly changed the game. Now, we've got some other things here. Like, this is sort of a homologation special, but not. So, there was the Strata and the Biposto and other versions made of it. There's a slightly hotter version, and there's this version and whatever. Now, I want to talk about what a long shot this bike was. And this is where marrying the woman with crazy amounts of credit card deck really comes into play. So... There's some weird stories I read about this that have stories to do with finance that I don't really fully understand. But basically, it's hard to know for certain how authentic your Ducati 851 is. Because for the first few years they were making them, parts would get swapped out on the production bikes depending on who was willing to extend credit to Ducati at that time. Wait, what? Yeah. So I said it's got the 41 inverted forks. Some of them came with traditional forks because at a certain point, because he was like, uh, I don't know how many more units we can ship you without you giving us a check. Okay. And in fact, in 1987, the bike was a disaster at first because people complained about the handling because at the last minute, someone who was going to be supplying the 17-inch front wheel decided that they needed to get paid first and withheld the order, so they had to put in leftover stock of 16-inch front wheels, which fucked up all the geometry of the bike. (laughs) Wow. There were replacement ignition systems (laughs) and all kinds of weird shit. But apparently the frame and the engine at its core, and if you swapped out a 17-inch front wheel, that combination of this bike was good enough that everyone just loved it. And in 87, 88, and 1990, so just missing one year but in its first four years it won three world superbike championships oh shit like yes what we're hoping the panigale v4r does this did and on the back of that success ducati became solvent again so when i say this is the first real ducati this is when ducati got into world superbike this is when ducati started winning in any sort of way that's relevant to today this is the the bike that begins the lineage that extends up to the the panigale v4r right this is the v4r in 1987 yes because ducati don't race because they can they race because they have to Yes. Yeah. Their brand loses 50% of its pizzazz if they're not winning something. Yes. Well, and again, it's how they became solvent. It really, it really is in the DNA of who the company is today. It is, they, they cannot be separated from racing because that's how they were reborn. 
right? You know, everyone talks, oh, okay, in the mid-90s or whatever, you get the monster and that saved him. You know, the monster's not that much later after this. A decade. Yeah, even like just maybe a little less, like mid-90s. Right. So, I mean, yeah, the, the monster really took off, but it 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 would have gone nowhere without this. And also, the you know, the... Like those SS models and everything are really just monsters with fairings thrown on them and everything. They were kind of just making those cheap bikes, but those bikes were only sold because of the pizzazz of this race winning bike. None of it gets greenlit by Kajiva, whoever else, right? You know, Kajiva was like, okay, we're going to try a lot of weird shit, but a lot of weird shit was not working. This worked when everything else off the bat failed. Yeah. Turns out kicking ass can kind of be successful. Right. Now there's another reason this is the best bike in the world. It's really difficult to find one, but if you do find one and you have a little cash to float, this is a free motorcycle. Okay. So, if you buy one of these, it's going to be extremely difficult to find one that is so original and so pure for all the reasons I described before. It's hard to know what's actually stock, what is original, what's been replaced by owners over time, right? Like authenticating one is very difficult. And if you're willing to spend $15,000 potentially on the best example there possibly is that one might produce might right rise in value enough to you know be worthy of being called some sort of investment at some point but the average value on these right now for good ones is somewhere around like eight thousand dollars which kind of seems like a lot of money for a 1987 superbike but no, because this one has sig- significant um, historical context, and it's there aren't a lot of them. There's really not very many of them. So they're becoming increasingly rare. They're getting bought up, but they haven't been fully realized. Now, the ones that aren't perfect concourse, they're not going to make you rich, but if you just put 500 miles a year on them, you know, whatever their value is going to rise with inflation. Well, a little bit faster than inflation for a little while, right? You could get these for two, three grand, 15 years ago, no problem, in like perfect shape every day of the week. Nobody gave a fuck. And now they're back up to eight. So they're kind of they're kind of about where they were back in 87. And now they're just going to do that thing where they rise with inflation, and so at any moment, you'll be able to unload this to a collector for exactly what you paid for it, plus inflation. So it's a free motorcycle. You can own a piece of Ducati history essentially for free and be the coolest kid on your block with the most 80s slash 90s weird Italian awesome thing ever. And this is how hard they are to find. I only found one for sale on the internet right now. And it's being sold by our friend Nate from Motomen. It's a frontline Eurosports. He's asking eight grand. 
and it looks real clean. And if I had the money, I mean, you know, Nate, if you're listening, if you want to take my super hawk as down payments, and you're willing to finance me on the rest of the balance of eight grand, we can get this done. Although it's tricky though, because I can't, because then I got to cut down how much I'm riding. Because I can't just put 8,000 miles on this bike this year, right? It's got to be a second bike, just sunny summer Sundays. So you've been talking for quite a while now, and you've clearly got a lot invested in this particular pick. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I'm super jazzed about this bike, though. This is, yeah, there is no doubt about it. This is an amazing bike. I do, I I do want to know if this particular picture we're looking at is a Marlboro special. And no, so this this red, white, and green uh paint job is what they released the bike with in 1987 only i believe they're all just red for every subsequent year okay oh that's a weird sort of italian flag yes style okay okay yeah that doesn't make a lot of sense but we'll go with it one feature on this bike that a lot of people hate and think of as super tacky and overkill that I absolutely love uh-huh. is turn signals integrated into mirrors. These ones are done in a really unique way, too, because the integrated turn signal mirrors are lower than the handlebars, which yes. I've never seen anywhere else. I love it. Also, something else that this bike did that was amazing, and it's another key that this came out of Ducati doing weird, uh, sorry, Kajiva doing weird things out of Ducati, is this is basically them taking the, what I can only call unfortunate bodywork off of the Ducati Pazo, and then turning into something beautiful by just changing the slight problems with it. You might need to Google Ducati Pazo real quick and take a look at what a disaster that was. All right, let's see. How do you spell that? P-A-S-O. It's only like a year or two before this. All right, what are we looking at here? So, wait, this is a 750. So the Pazo is the old, just air-cooled Panta 750. The The, the Pazo is like the uh, motor out of the Ducati Indiana. It's old school. But if you look at, like I said, the unfortunate bodywork. It's it's almost cool. Like I said, almost. But the 851 solved all the problems. Yes. Right? This is, this is so close, but it's so far. This is... This is firmly in uncanny valley of motorcycle aesthetics. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is even a bit weird for me. Well, the problem is that it's so close to something that you recognize as a motorcycle, but it's just slightly off in every way in in a measure that makes it disturbing. Yeah, it, the bodywork that extends up where there would have been a windshield is it's like one of those it's like some sort of like fashion show french hat where the hat is designed like some household object you're like i see what you did there pointless i don't know what why can't a hat just be a hat what's going on 
I see that you've decided to cover the windshield on this car with an acrylic paint. That's not going to fly. So, yeah, back back to the 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 eight five one. So I'll kind of throw in here with the eight five one. Also, how are we doing for time here? I feel like we've been talking about this for quite a while. Oh, no, we're about 45 minutes total. We're doing okay. So okay. I'm going to wrap this up very quickly, and then we're going to move on because this is – well, no, we need to get into emails, don't we? We do. Okay. So I'll just end it with – I'm going to include the Ducati 888 in with the 851, and that'll be for reasons which will become clearer later on in the episode. So for right now, it's basically a free motorcycle. It's badass. It's Ducati racing history, and if you ask me, it's kind of the most 90s thing ever in a good way. The Ducati 851, best bike in the world this week, or fuck you. All right, put a break in here. Cool. And we're back. So before he gets hammered, Swiggy's going to read the emails. Let's do it. Let's do it. We've got some good ones this week. Okay, so this is from Will in Tennessee, and he uh, says, and he says, hey guys, I'm so thoroughly enjoying the show and learning about bikes I've never heard of. Thank you for turning down the rev bombs and the brakes, and I'm enjoying MotoGP's guitar brakes a lot. You might be the only one, but thank you. (laughs) I wanted to to write you to tell you that I finally traded my Sportster and went British. I picked up an 05 Triumph Tiger 955i, and I'm loving it. That's a pretty sweet bike, and I'm a little jealous. I have been noticing the 955i jump up everywhere. I briefly thought about making it a best bike in the world, but I'm not convinced yet. But they it's a bike that was reliable enough that solved some of the early three cylinder problems with the middle cylinder overheating from Triumph. You've got it's kind of like a second generation of Hinkley Triumph motor, right? It's also a gigantic three cylinder. Yeah, motor. it's a cool engine for sure. But the Tiger is more of like just a really gigantic trail bike. It's not really a full adventure off road bike, but They've met this point right now where people have unloaded them for newer adventure bikes. Because remember, the Tiger was really early to the, quote, adventure bike party. And so a lot of people that want an adventure bike for sort of just the the cruiser, super comfortable, capable highway bike aspect of it are picking up Tigers left and right for nothing. Let's go on with the email. Yeah. It needs a few things here and there, but it is roadworthy and so much more comfortable than the Sportster. I picked it up last week and did some two-up riding with my wife over the weekend, and she loves it too. If you guys are ever in the Nashville area myself, and I'm sure Brian will love to get together for a ride. Glad it's warming up for you guys and you don't have to worry about the winter riding anymore. Keep up the great work. Well... We did until this week when, and apparently it's going to snow tomorrow. It's such bullshit. This is not how it normally goes. I'm, we're being robbed and I'm pissed. 
I'm not happy with it. Anyway. So yeah, um awesome. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, we're we're hoping we're going to make it out to Columbus for the AIM Expo this year, which is not far from you. So, I don't know, maybe we could meet up or do something around there then. I don't know. But in the meantime, enjoy the shit out of that tiger. Like I said, I'm noticing the ti- Triumph Tigers are on my radar. And I need to think about them some more and find some angle or they need to get even cheaper. But they're they're achieving a very special status in the used bike market right now because I'm just seeing people buying them everywhere. At some point, everyone is going to recognize Torque as the masterpiece that it is. Yeah, and, and it's the, the nine, motor out of the sprint in that. And no, the 955 the just Daytona. The, the, Daytona, the Daytona That's it, yeah. Is is going to skyrocket in value. It's going to happen. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our other Nashville email. Yes, and this is equal parts disturbing and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> the, I was at work... And uh, I, my phone blinked with this one, and it was I was I was taking an order, and, or putting in an order for shit, and reading this simultaneously, and it just it just stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> Let's tell the people what Brian did. Okay, so the subject on this email is douchebag, and Brian said Brian from Tennessee says. I did it on a whim. I thought somebody with a diavel or another multi would already have taken it. Regardless, I told myself, it looks like a regular license plate number, and only a keen-eyed motorcyclist would even notice. But God help me, now I'm an official fucking douchebag. I've never done anything but make fun of this kind of douchebaggery. I would never, ever do this on a car but it somehow felt less douchey on a tiny motorcycle plate. Now I'm not so sure. Anyway, I guess I have to double down now and get one for the Super Cub. Any suggestions? Six characters is the max, including any spaces. I really enjoyed your CODIS interviews. Sorry I missed you guys in Austin. Come to Birmingham for the Moto America race in September. I'll meet you there and bring all the beverages. Brian. Attached to this email is the incriminating evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Brian has purchased or uh, registered a personalized license plate for his Multistrada. It's the displacement of the engine on his Multistrada in CCs is his license plate number. Now, I'm with him. That, yes, to the vast majority of people, this just looks like a regular license plate. So, I, I've seen much worse. But, he, you know, he was saying he's got to go full hog. Like he's got to go whole hog, right? So, the douchiest motorcycle license plate I've ever seen was on a Ducati. And it just said, my duck. So I'm like, well, why not just take the same philosophy and comically apply it to the Super Cub, right? So my first thought and suggestion was, well, on the Super Cub, it needs to be my cub. Because what kind of insane weirdo is bragging about owning the Super Cub that way? 
And I thought about it a lot, and I still haven't come up with anything better. I challenge the listeners to come up with a weirder, better license plate for him. It's tough. I'm trying to think of like what kind of reference you could have on the cub that it's a tricky one because i mean the cub is just the cub there's no there aren't a lot of external references you can do that are associated with the bike right i mean you can't make it honda one it's it's not honda one is somehow douchier than the what would seem douchier at first my cub right it's like if you if you're behind a car then it's like my lambo right that's really ridiculous but if you were behind a nissan altima and the license plate said altima one you're like i like this guy right there's something ridiculous about putting the flashy plate on the cheaper vehicle there's a certain humor to it that i think helps forgive the I think when you combine the forgiveness of that with the fact that the Ducati plate that he's got looks like a normal plate, pretty much everything is forgiven, and it just becomes a funny story. And then all of a sudden, and then it's happy days for everyone. Yeah, we'll have to brainstorm on this. But for the for the Super Cub, it's a tricky. That's I'm, a tricky I'm sticking one. with my Cub. I think yeah. it's strong. It's pretty good. I'm just trying to I'm just struggling to think of because there's no other iconic reference to the cub the cub is just the cub and that is the statement in and of itself what can you put next to it there's no real reference that you can get in six characters well he can put one two five cc with a space and make that work but the problem is is that no one, he can't ride the Ducati and the Cub at the same time, so no one knows he's got the one that says, you know, 12 whatever cc's, and the one that says 125 to get the joke, right? Whereas Mm. my Cub on its own works as a joke. Like, oh, isn't it hilarious that this guy's bragging about his Super Cub, right? Yeah, I mean, that also kind of makes, you also have to understand the reference to my duck or something similar to the concept. My Lambo, my Rari. People have seen these license plates. Yeah. So as a small tangent here, we should talk about how fortunate we are in the U.S. Oh, that you our, can do these on a whim? Yeah. And our ability to get personalized license plates. Our British listeners will know what a fucking nightmare this if, is to get done. If they've tried. If they have enough money, because that's what it really comes down to. So think about this, Brian, and how easily you got this done. If so, in the UK, you can tell what year and sometimes even down to the month that a car was made or a bike or whatever by the license plate number. There is a formula to how the numbers are generated. And when you go and register a new vehicle, that vehicle is assigned a license plate that stays with that vehicle for its entire life, and it cannot be changed. So, because of the formula of how these plates come out, eventually just totally ordinary cars end up with license plates that say things like, My Rari, 
and whatever, right? And James Bond shit and whatever you want. So if you want to have a Ferrari that has a Ferrari custom license plate, well, first of all, someone's probably already bought that plate and put it on a Ferrari. So you have to purchase that car that has that license plate, have the car destroyed, take the license plate and the old title with you to go register your new Ferrari to then have it registered first with that number plate, which will then be attached to that car for the rest of its life. We know people who have had this done. It's ridiculous. But the best is when you read about some guy that goes and buys a brand new like Peugeot 306 and by the luck of the draw gets a license plate that says something amazing <laughs> and then he goes out and celebrates like he's won the fucking lottery because he's just bought an $18,000 car that's worth $80,000 now because of the license plate. <laughs> it's uh, it's every chav's dream really is to buy a new 306 that instantly becomes 80 grand at the bmv <laughs> oh so good all right all right next email moving on all right and we got this email literally as we were recording just before we got to emails so we had a little bit a little bit of time to process this. Oh, we're skipping an email. Are we? Uh what have I missed? Oh shit, yes. It's very short. Alright, so now we have an email from Don who says Hey folks, in episode sixty five there was a discussion on communication devices and how it would be handy to have a one button way to talk to riders we meet on the road. Cardo has what they call click-to-link. It's been part of their offering for some time now. This unfortunately only works with other Cardo headsets. I agree, this would be a great cross-platform option. Great show, you guys. Keep it up. So, Sina has something like this also that we're aware of. There's like a world mode you can put your Sina into, and with a one-click... To any other Cena unit around you, you'll just automatically connect together. But yeah, it's still not what we're looking for. This, hey, I see you. All of a sudden, there's a quick thing we can do to get together. Well, I have no idea what the Cardo version is like. Is And the question is like, yes, you and I, if we were just given two brand new Cena units that were just on the latest firmware and hadn't been set up or paired to a phone or whatever, we could slap them on our helmets and connect in about 10 seconds. We could do that. But is that something you could do at a traffic light if you had rolled up alongside somebody? Is that something you could just do like in the moment? I believe if you're rolling with your Cena with it just in world mode and you roll up on another Cena unit, you can both just hit the button once and they'll search together to connect. Right. I wonder if this is almost like um, what we're really asking for is kind of like um, I remember for a while Samsung had a had an app called it was something like Bump, which was um, 
it was a way to sync phones together or connect phones together for like sharing photos and data data and stuff and the way it worked you had the two phones that would go into the app and then you would say like i want to send this photo and then both phones would have the app open and then like you would just like hit the other phone with your phone and because both the gyros went off at the same time they instantly knew that those two phones were the ones that wanted to connect yeah i wonder if there's some sort of situation i hesitate with doing it with the app because i don't want to encourage riders to be doing anything to fuck with their phones while they're riding also there's issues over the phone's going to try to connect together via bluetooth which is problematic if they're hidden in boxes or in your pocket well, um, i don't think it needs to be the exact same mechanism but if you could offload the pairing work to your phone in some way. Well, what you're doing is you're thinking too much. Don's already doing the Lord's work for us. And we need to continue to ask listeners to come up with a series of settings that works across. Like, guys, get nerdy. Get Just be drinking alone by yourself late at night, going through manuals on Cena's and Cardo's. There probably is some way to set these things up that what we're talking about exists. If it was as simple as, hey, people that are interested in doing this, be rolling around with these settings turned on. That's a start. It, Would it be, wouldn't it be great if we could all have cameras on our on our helmets that were connected to our phones and also connected to our Cenas, and we could just put like QR codes on our bikes that just said like, Please talk to me. I want to hang out. Yeah, sticker on the back of your helmet. Whatever. The, the, yeah, there's ways. There, there's some listener out there that knows how this can work, that's willing to look into this deeper than we have. So, all right, let's move on to our last email, because this is, this is a good one. So, we literally got this email right before we started recording our email segment and let's just jump into it let's do that so this is from henson henson says dear nokomoto my name is henson and i'm 14 and i'm from nashville tennessee i love your podcast my favorite episode so far is the interview you had with that man from Twisted Roads named Austin. He's the founder and CEO of Twisted Road. I'll have you know. Yeah. <laughs> I found it to be quite an interesting business endeavor. I also enjoyed y'all's brilliant idea of having some sort of Bluetooth communicator to talk to other fellow riders on the road. I started listening to your podcast a few weeks ago while mowing the lawn. I've always loved motorcycles and have aspired to own slash ride one. I turned 15 in July and would like to get my motorcycle permit. The problem here is that my parents are not really on board with this idea. I can understand why, because granted, it is a more dangerous activity than driving a five-star crash-rated 2015 Volvo XC60. To increase the likelihood of getting a permit, I have offered ideas like taking extra safety courses. I have also stated that whenever 
slash if ever I own slash ride one of these two-wheeled death machines, that's what my mom calls it, that I would make it my number one priority to always wear the proper safety gear. I have also done the research and came up with a solid beginner bike, the Honda Rebel 300. But my mom says things like, you can get one when I'm six feet under. Or my personal favorite, do you want to die? And my answer to these statements are, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. John A. Shedd. I feel that some of these false assumptions, like if you swing your leg over a bike, you will die, are made due to a lack of knowledge, so I feel it is important that someone should educate themselves on the topic before they make an assumption about it. Also, I feel life should be filled with new experiences and that life should not be lived in fear. John Roan once said, If you are not willing to risk the unusual, you'll have to settle for the ordinary. I know for a fact that riding a motorcycle is something I would like to do at the age of 15, and I have, however, taken into consideration the fact that I live under their roof and they pay the bills, but my urge to ride one of these two-wheeled beasts can't wait and needs to be satisfied. The greatest mistake we make is living in constant fear that we will make one. John C. Maxwell I feel that my parents fear that they will make a mistake of putting me on a motorcycle. I'll wrap this long, time-consuming email by asking you, nokomoto slash motogp slash swiggy, if you have any pointers or pro tips on convincing some not-so-motorcycle-loving parents on letting their son ride. Thank you, Henson. Okay, so I've got some thoughts. Number one, your first bike's not going to be new. So throw out this Honda Rebel 300. In fact, throw out any idea of exactly which bike you want, because that's just not how it works. Lots of people like to think and talk about the perfect first bike. You always just kind of end up with what comes along with the money you've got whenever it comes together. Yeah, I thought my first bike was going to be a, a Triumph Bonneville. And that dream was dashed incredibly quickly yeah second this is going to be a trick for you now we support you wanting to ride henson we really do but this is going to be a long hard fought road now the longer and harder you fight it the greater your chances of success what first brings to mind is well actually so we're going to have both come to this conclusion very quickly that what you need is a job Yes. Now, you don't need a particularly high-paying job. Anything will do. Because what you need to do is raise about $500 to get this whole thing started. So you can get this done by the 4th of July. No problem. Now, what you need to do, and this is probably the only time I'm going to give out this advice to anybody... You need to buy a non-running bike. You need to buy a total disaster. You need like a 1972 CB350 that has tags on it from 1989. You need something that's a disaster. Now, it's going to take about another $2,000 to get this thing running. And you're, 
I mean, I don't know. If your dad's got tools, I'm sure he'll let you use them responsibly to fix up an old bike or whatever. But you need to come up with the money. You need to find the Craigslist ad. You need to say, hey, dad, what are you doing Saturday? Can we get in the truck and go look at this bike? You know, because you're 15. You can't get a vehicle titled in your name. Now, you can buy a non-running piece of junk and just hold on to the title until you get it running, at which point you may have put in enough work to convince your folks that maybe they need to budge a little bit here on something and come up with a real compromise. But I'm trying to come up with another way that you can show them that you're fairly serious, and I can't really come up with a good one besides this. A CB350 is a good choice because that's something you can order every conceivable part for, for and just get mail ordered to you, right? You don't need to go to a bike shop. You can just get all the manuals and expertise and everything and just do this via the internet, eBay, Amazon, CommonMotorCollective.com, and your dad's garage and tools. And you can get this going. Now, it's going to take some time, and you might be 17 by the time this is all really accomplished. But this is the route where you have the greatest chance of success. What are your thoughts here, Swigs? Well, I think there are a few complications <clears throat> and in that strategy. And we will have to accept that we don't know the full story here and that there are a lot of potential branching paths in the direction that the Henson can take here. But the first is definitely if your parents are very strongly not on board with the idea of you getting a motorcycle, the first thing you need to ask is how long have you had this idea? Is is this your equivalent of a uh like is this your goth phase like is that what's going on here and i realize that this can be a very hard thing to introspect on as a 14 year old it can be difficult and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to really introspect here and think about how long have you been asking to ride a motorcycle because this may be something that by the time you are 15 and a half and you can get your driver's permit that you can wear your parents down on. That is a possibility. However, if you are really serious about wanting to ride a motorcycle, you also have to accept the possibility that your parents will not allow you to ride a motorcycle until you are off of their car insurance, and not living in their house anymore. That's, that's, that's a possibility you're going to have to accept and evaluate for. In which case, you are also, A, going to have to get a job, and B, you are going to have to kick ass in school and just get straight A's and... Make and convince your parents, and also not just your parents, but an insurance company 
that you can be insured for as cheaply as possible at your age. Those are things you're going to have to aim for. So you're going to have to really ask yourself, how badly do you want to ride? How strongly, how strong is that conviction? And what is potentially the multi-year process it may take to achieve that goal? Yeah, I think what he's looking for is somewhere like a mixture, somewhere in between the advice you gave and I gave. Although I did just realize going back to two weeks ago, the TW200 is a much better choice than a CB350. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, well, the TW200, one, this is a perfect first bike for a 15-year-old. Yeah, street legal, carbureted, single cylinder. Good for off-road in case he can't get insured. Yeah. No bullshit rubber cam chain tensioner. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was just the roller. That's just the roller wheel on the cam chain tension. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, think humble. Think very humble. And, you know, maybe it's a scooter as well. Maybe it's a Honda Metropolitan. You know, wheels is wheels, right? And whatever motorcycle you might be able to land yourself with, be cool with it. Because if any of your friends ever want to make fun of your scooter, you can be like, oh, really? Like, what color is yours, asshole? Right? Yeah. I think there is another angle to look at this, which is if you do want to go the route of convincing your parents to let you ride a motorcycle as soon as you can get a driver's license, you do need to look at it from their perspective, which is their child wants to do something that's extremely dangerous at least extremely dangerous from their perspective. And, you know, you're their child. You know, you you might be willing to take the risk, but they might not be willing to allow you to take the risk. And that is something that at 14 can be hard to understand, but it is a big deal. And... If you can if you can think about that and kind and start to look at it from their perspective, you can begin to understand where they're coming from and that might help you to be able to empathize with their position and form a better argument in your own words as to how you can convince them. You know, I think we've given them enough good advice. I just want to reflect on the idea that most motorcyclists, pretty much every motorcyclist has to come to the sad realization that when they obtain the motorcycle, they're not going to experience the huge increase in sex that they were expecting. Probably. <laughs> Although, you know, the ages of 15 and a half to 19 might actually be a period in time in which a motorcycle will attract a lot of girls. Not the kind of girls that would make particularly good girlfriends. But, you know, when you're 15 and a half to 19, you kind of want a series of shitty girlfriends. It's really a good way to go. So, you know... 
I mean, like, one of the biggest dangers of getting this motorcycle might be, like, STDs or pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put that out there. I mean, it's to be considered, not discounted, right? I mean, he's in Nashville. It's a city. I mean, there's going to be plenty of, like, you know, like, the kind of girls that, like, got a tattoo without their parents knowing, like, you know, kind of easygoing, right? They're, They're into motorcycles, Right? So, eh, keep that in mind. That might be the motivating factor he needs to achieve these straight A's. I don't know if they're into Rebel 300s. Yeah, I. but you know, like, it's che- look, most people don't know what the fuck is any difference between any motorcycles anyway, let alone teenage girls. They just know it's two wheels, his parents hate it, and her parents are sure as shit gonna hate it. And that's that that's panty dropper right there. So there you go. All right. <laughs> let's let's take a break. And then we're gonna talk with Helite or Zach from Helite, I believe, right? Yeah. Anyway, take a break. We'll be back with the rest of the show. Coming back from our break, now we're going to bring in our guest for this episode. We're talking with Zach from Helite. Say hello. Uh, hi, how you doing? Doing good. Awesome to have you. Now, can you explain to everyone sort of what your job title position is, who you are with Helite? Yeah. Uh, so, my, yeah, my name is Zach McHugh, and I'm the, the brand manager for Helite. Um, and it's for Helite Motor USA, which is the main distributor for Helite in the United States. Uh, so yeah, we are the American arm of the Helite operation. And Helite, for anybody that doesn't know, is a company that's based in France. That's where it started and that's where it's grown from. And so yeah, we, uh, we represent them in the United States. Cool. Now, you, some might say somewhat foolishly, have sent us a couple vests to test out for the new, let me get this straight, the Helite Turtle 2 model, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So you guys are kind of making a big deal about this. Do you want to explain what this vest that we're staring at here right now, What the the why this one's a big deal? What's the step up? What's the new features? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I mean, safety is not foolish, no matter how foolish you even look. You know, if it does what it says it's going to do, I mean, that's only a good thing. So, yeah, there's no foolishness there. Hopefully you guys wear them, and then, you know, you're protecting yourself while you're riding your motorcycle. Um, and that that's what they they aim to do. <clears throat> the uh, About five years ago, uh, the Helate made a change. They had the original Air Nest vest, which was, you know, pretty much a landmark piece of gear uh, in terms of airbag protection, the mechanically activated system. And it's similar to the one that is available today at the Turtle version. So about five years ago, they created the Turtle Vest, and it got its name mainly because there was a back protector, an integrated SASTEC back protector at C Level 2 that protects basically, you know, from the up above where your shoulder blades are all the way down to your lower back. 
And because it was on the outside of the airbag, it's almost like a turtle shell. Like it's hard on the outside and you had that softer, um, you know, airbag protection on the inside. So that, that was the big innovation that really kicked everything off. Um, I mean, it, it took off. It, it's very popular in Europe because obviously they started there and they've been doing it. They've been doing this for, for quite some time. And so, you know, five years ago, it kind of hit the States with the turtle, with the turtle airbag vest. Now with this turtle two vest, uh, we've basically taken all feedback from customers and kind of just done a, a facelift for it. So essentially, the cut's a little bit cleaner. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more ergonomic. It just works even better with gear that it already worked with. So, for example, Turtle Vest works with any piece of gear that you already own, any jacket, any vest, anything that you wear. This goes over top of it seamlessly. There's three adjustable straps in the front to be able to, you know, tailor it to whatever sort of gear you're wearing to make sure that the fit is nice uh, and then from there, <clears throat> they've affected change at the collar. So what they used to have were two Velcro strips that you kind of pull the collar away, depending on the fit of the of the vest, and it would kind of give you alleviation there at the at the neck. So now they've done away with that, and it's a little bit broader of a cut, a little more open with a neoprene collar, so it's really soft. Uh, another addition is they've basically made it look like just a vest before it looked like you were wearing a piece of safety gear um with something weird like an umbilical cord coming out the front um so now there's two flat panels in front that conceal the the charge the co2 cartridge that that deploys the vest um and additionally uh another aesthetic change they made is previously only the hive is had reflective stripping on it for high visibility at night. And now among all colors and all models of the Turtle 2, you'll have reflective strips on the back and somewhat in the front. So those are basically the, the, the changes that they made. It's still the kind of the landmark piece of gear. Like Helate, it needs to be said, is, is a patented piece of motorcycle gear. So, you know, we, we have the fastest mechanically activated airbag system deploys at around 80 milliseconds, give or take the size. Um, and it, we also have certification, one through CE and another through CRIT. And through this, it's maintained that, you know, this, this is the most protective gear that you can have in terms of airbag technology. Now, there are digital systems that deploy a little bit faster than that. However, they're digital and, you know, we go with mechanical very intentionally because of the, the fail-safe aspect of it. So, it's something that we think all riders should be wearing. Um, and what I always say every day when talking about this is motorcycle performance in the last 20 years. I mean, if you, if you were to look at the, the amount of output, power output, horsepower, torque, all that stuff, I mean, it's, it's exponentially exploded with, with fuel-injected motorcycles. Uh, safety gear has not. It has not followed pace with one iota. So that, that's, a, that's a big deal for us and we really do believe that you got to have this stuff whenever you're at a motorcycle yeah i, I want to get with what you were talking about there about the speed at which it deploys i had read yeah. that it was fast i we weren't really prepared for just how fast it is when we set this thing off in here i pulled on it and i wasn't I wasn't quite aware how much they, you know, that 60 pounds was going to be. So when I pulled it, I don't even think I blinked. 
I think my vision just sort of jumped as I as okay. I kind of found myself stepping backwards, and I one hundred percent missed all of Swiggy's vest inflating. It just <laughs> all of a sudden it just was, and yeah. You know, and then then when he you know popped off the vest while I was wearing it, I thought, okay, I'm ready. I'm gonna I'm gonna notice it. I'm just you know I almost said with my eyes closed, like let's get ready for that moment. Nope, it's just all of a sudden it just is. You cannot imagine it inflating any faster than it does. It's yeah. really shocking, and yeah. I wasn't quite prepared for just how. Um, how fully it inflates as well. I thought, well, okay, there's going to be this barrier of air all around me. And man, this thing expands like nothing else. I was yeah. wondering where all the $700 of the price tag on this thing goes. And it clearly goes right. into how durable a piece of equipment this is. It's, yeah, you know, you think, oh, this vest is going to show up. It's got this air bladder thing. Like, why does that cost 700 bucks? When you feel how much pressure this thing holds and how well it works, you start seeing where that goes. I mean, even just the, the mechanism to set it off, being the nerds that we are, you know, we took the whole thing and looked at exactly how this works. And it's very simple, but extremely sturdy. There's yeah. there's nothing bullshit in it. I cannot imagine a situation where it fails to go off. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, first, let me say thanks for the kind words, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll go with that sentiment about you know the no messing around sort of aspect. It's you know Helite is an airbag company. It's an airbag technology company. It's not necessarily an apparel company. So when it comes to this stuff. Basically, we have the technology first, which is, as you've experienced, pretty robust and intense, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a serious piece of safety gear, and that's first. Everything else comes come secondary. You know, the Turtle 2 is the new, is the new airbag, that, the new airbag vest that's come out, and that's just it. It took five years to kind of get a facelift with other minor adjustments. I mean, we're, we're focused on safety first because, like I said before, it's important that the motorcyclists are wearing this stuff, you know, and, and, and always protecting themselves as best they can because things can go bad when you're out on the road. I've been in three accidents myself. So, you know, it doesn't matter what level you're at, you know, things can happen and you got to be prepared for it. So, right now. So I have a question for you. So it's pretty clear that the, the, the mechanical trigger is pretty robust and there's there's no way it's not going to go off reliably. But kind of one of the features that a lot of the like the Alpine Star stuff is that they're boasting, oh, it's electronic, so it can go off on a G4 sensor, which is great. But it's also you know you have to you have to now charge your jacket as well as your yeah. Cena and your phone and whatever else you're yeah. carrying around. It's adding kind of another big step to being prepared which is fine for yeah. a track situation but day in day out right right have you and this is this is why we opt we, we opt for the mechanical deployment because there's one i mean there's less user error you know this is this is a, a product that when people get it you know it, it's self-explanatory but you know you want to make sure that that even if somebody just kind of takes liberties with it that they can't really 
make an error because you, we, we still want people to be protected. So again, in, in regards to the mechanical aspect of it, that's also there. It's, it's one and zero to the deployer. It's not, there's no half measures. There's no, you know, batteries that aren't charged. There's no user error possibility as long as that lanyard's been installed correctly, which is very easy. So yeah, that that's really what the what the focus is, um, and that's why we kind of go the mechanical route uh, because of the the improbability that something you know we're trying to pare down variables here, we're trying to pare down the the possibility that something goes wrong with it. So yeah, that that's that's all in the design. So Gerard Seveno is the, the designer of these, and and that. That's the main point. You know, you're trying to make the most effective piece of gear um, possible for for this arena, and you know, I, I think I think Helite's done it. Right. So what I'm wondering is, have you has anyone at Helite considered designing a potential double trigger model where you could have the normal mechanical one, <laughs> and then you could just have you know a, a plug. Then you just say, hey, if you send five volts through this wire, it'll also set off the vest, and you can plug whatever electronics in that you want to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so Helite not only works in the motorcycle industry, we have have systems for skiers, uh, light aircraft, like hang gliders and stuff like that, delta wing things. And we also do equestrian vests and jackets. And we've, this past year, have finally released, there's a hip safe, uh, like an airbag belt for seniors, as well as a the B-safe jacket, which is for, you know, commuting bicyclists. And the, the B-safe and the hip safe uh, systems are electronic. So there are points of data that then will deploy the uh, the same airbag technology in these things. So, we're, yeah, Helite's always active, you know, in, in, in these regards. There's no there's no announcement or anything like that yet. There's no plans for it, nothing that, you know, I can, like, whet anybody's appetite with. Um, when it comes to the motorcycle stuff, it's going to stay mechanical for the time being because um, because of the technology. So Okay. So just to kind of give people an idea of what they're getting for this significant upgrade in safety – so, as you said, this thing goes off in 80 milliseconds. I haven't done the math, but let's say, mm-hmm. you know, as you're, as you're tethered into your bike, you know, your body's going to move a couple feet at least before the thing goes off. But in that 80 milliseconds, I mean, what kind of mm-hmm. speeds and distances are we talking about this thing being at its most effective? Yeah, I mean, really, it's only a matter of inches. So... When you put the lanyard on your bike, we always we always recommend that you put it like towards your the fulcrum or your center of gravity when you're sitting down, and then feed it that way. So that means that in any in lateral motion, any which way, left, right, forward, back, diagonal, whatever the the case may be, you're pretty much getting like an equidistant travel, and it only takes like like okay. So when you install the lanyard, we say stand up, and then right before your your leg your knees can lock, it should be taut. It's really only about four inches of movement. So, in, I mean, I, I get testimonials all the time from riders in both situations. I get testimonial from riders who need another cartridge because they had a tip over or like a five mile per hour, like fall, and it goes off, right? They're, and then there's the other aspect where it's like, you know, they're, they're going very fast or they're rear-ended or something, and it goes off, and they don't even realize it until they get up 
look at their bikes and realize that like they're okay and that the, the you know they're being hugged by this airbag sort of deal so i mean in in any in any in situation in any scenario you know the, the this it's effective right it's interesting you say that some people have not i not noticed that it's gone off until they're standing up because it it kind of goes off violently almost like it, it, <laughs> yeah. it's it really is one hell of an experience it, if you don't know what's coming for one of these things to go <laughs> off on you like i mean i'm almost thinking like you know the 60 pounds on the trigger like i don't know make it 80 because like if if this thing went off while whilst i was riding just cruising along and just went off wow i it, it I, yeah. there might the the bike might get a little out of sorts i'll tell you what it's not nothing yeah. it's not nothing yeah i mean the yeah, the good news is, is that you have to really move off the bike. You know, like we have the GP best. So the guys are like hanging off the bike, you know, in a turn. And it, it's not going off. I mean, it, you, you've got to get the right play. Um, too taut, obviously, yeah, if you stand up or something, you might stand up fast enough or hard enough to make it go off. But you're going to get a good tug. It's it's kind of the sweet spot. And that's that's really the other aspect that's important to, like, this airbag technology is not the firmest. And not necessarily the fastest. It's, you, you need optimal pressure, and you need you need that that ability to deploy at the right times. So through all of those those minor variables, you know we we feel that we've we, that we've hit it uh, in all those in all those regards. You know, like fifty pounds. Like you said doesn't seem that much, and in an accident, definitely is not. And that's kind of what you want. But you know, you're not going to be getting off the bike and having it go off. I mean, you really have to you'd have to leap off the off the bike. Oh, that's well, absolutely you know, before, true. Before it goes off. Yeah, by stepping on and off the bike, you're guaranteed not to. But, you know, you can kind of pull up more with your hips than you think. So I think it might be possible, say someone uh, forgot that they were wearing it and tried to stand up in some sort of like adventure riding position. Maybe mm-hmm. someone might be able to set it off, but you're still probably yeah. going to notice. It, it, who knows? Yeah. But I think the system's very good. I'm just kind of wondering um as you said uh, setting it up to be as optimum as it can be from the heat light videos that i've seen it kind of seems that this is designed around the idea that if you're cruising along in town at say 35 miles an hour it's pretty much you know this thing's going to inflate before you come in contact with a car that you've just t-boned because they've pulled out in front of you or mm-hmm. like that's kind of like about the perfect use case or like it's not designed for of, you crashing into yeah. your telephone pole at 120 it's it's kind of for yeah it's it's you know unfortunately what I'm like what are kind nothing, of the, oh sorry yeah that was that, that is is a specific scenario and yeah if you're going like 120 miles an hour into like a brick wall you know, it will still deploy. However, there are certain momentum velocities that, you know, you just can't fully protect against. Right. Right. Um, but you know, that's, it's, it's highly likely nobody's planning on running into a brick, a solid brick wall, like, you know, illegal speeds. Obviously. (laughs) I'm just kind of curious. I, I know like from a legal standpoint, you have to be very careful about what you say or claim in these sorts of things, but is there a general window where 
Helite is kind of comfortable saying it's most effective? Oh, well, I mean, there are so many variables. And so, it, you know, you can speculate and all these things. And we've done testing in facilities. Like I said, we have the certifications from CE and through CRIT for these things, for deployment speeds, um, for, you know, impact protection and stuff like that. Um, but, again, it's important to realize that, you know, any, anything beyond that is, is projection, you know. Yeah. Uh, you're going, you know, we, the, the best thing that I can say if, if people are trying to find, like, the scenario where it's, what's the range of this thing? It's like, you know, we have a 78-year-old man, Jim Rasmussen, who was in a head-on collision with an SUV, and he had a broken wrist. He's wearing one of our vests. You know, and he was going like 70 miles an hour. So that's legal speed. That's a normal accident. Head, I mean, it's actually pretty abnormal, in fact, with a head-on collision. Right. You know, and, and, and it works. There's a guy um, who just contacted me this last week. He bought his jacket in february and in april he basically he hit a medium going 65 miles an hour 71 year old man and he i mean he broke his femur and it's you know he's alive basically which in a scenario like that you know there's there's plenty of cases and for it's pretty morose but there's plenty of cases where that happens doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are it's it's not a good it's not a good situation you know what I mean so the the fact what I'm trying to get at is that like you know if you are riding a motorcycle and you are within the legal bounds of of, of speed limits even it seems that this does exactly what it's supposed to do which is protect you more than if you were not wearing it you know okay I I think uh, maybe you're not allowed to say it but maybe I can. It seems that even at sort of the extreme ends of cases, there are situations coming in where it's performing as expected or better than you might even be able to, you know, comfortably claim just in a statement for to the public. There, there's a wide range of what's going on with this, and it's difficult to say where it is and isn't effective because everything's so different. But there are, I get. Yeah, e- even on the upper range where you would normally, some people might say, well, with the rate of what you speed your body's going and when it inflates, like, no, it's still doing a lot for people. Okay. Yeah. I, I get you. Um, so that that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought even at those speeds it was still totally effective because your femur is about the hardest thing in your body to break. So I have to yeah. imagine what would happen to the rest of that guy if he hadn't worn the jacket. I'm with you. That's... And that's that's what he, you know. I actually am going to go live with his testimony on Monday, and and that's the point, right? Is that he is in in a fatal accident, and he's he's up and about now. You know what I mean? Like he had surgery on his femur, and he's okay. And he swears he's like, if I was not wearing this thing, uh, it would have been lights out. It would have been my last ride. <clears throat> I'll tell you when I put the thing on. Um, I've had some kind of shitty weather where I am since uh, we got them in the mail, but I did force myself to go out earlier today and ride around with it. And Swiggy's been riding with it all week. And after wearing one where I'd had it deployed and kind of just knowing what it would do, there was a certain sense of safety and satisfaction having it on. And I noticed something on your website. You said a lot of people will 
just consider it a necessary part of their writing after writing with it for a certain amount of time, even if it doesn't, they haven't used it in an accident already. Yeah. It just kind of becomes a part of your thing. And I do see how it becomes that way. You know, when you sort of make Mm -hmm. the commitment to wear a helmet at a certain point, you just stop considering riding without a helmet. And I think this is an interesting angle, and I want to explore this for a minute because we we um, one of the biggest responses we've ever had from our audience was an episode where we talked about various airbags, and we probably talked about Helite the most, mm. it being one of the kind of where price and protection sort of meets. I'm uh, I'm not saying in the middle, but like at a very optimum point. Yeah, you know, you can get the the Alpine Stars GPA GPR stuff, but you know, not a lot of people are going to spend as much as they spend on their motorcycle on just the the jacket, right? And then mm-hmm. there's then right. there are competitors to you guys that are about half the cost, but well, when you look at how quickly it inflates and everything, you're like, no, nah, I don't know, it seems cheaper. I don't, you know, it, yeah, it's like you know, it's like tires and brakes. There are plenty of places to spend a buck. Safety's not one of them. So yeah. Uh, we talked about Helite saying, well, is this a new standard, right? Or is this going to become a new standard for people? Yeah. And, you know, what? It, it, it takes a while. It took decades for most of the population to kind of get on board with full face helmets. I mean, we're still not really yeah. totally there. Yeah. What, what do you see being the – or what do – do you have any research on what people's barriers – to trying something this like this out or adopting this is it yeah. mostly cost is it some sort of i don't know the factor where being safer doesn't seem as cool like what 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 do you think the yeah. challenges are there yeah well you know i first it is our ambition as a company to make sure that people are adequately protecting themselves like i always say it's like you know you don't have to choose key light Obviously, we want that to happen, but we really want people to be wearing airbag protection because of how drastically it reduces and prevents injury. And in in the states, the states is different than the rest of the world, right? Like this is wildly popular everywhere else, and the states it's it's getting there, and and it's only a matter of time before it's integrated into the riding culture because. You know, the days of, you know, the, the the rambling sort of Harley with a leather vest and no shirt, leather chaps days, I mean, they're not really here anymore. There have been too many bad stories and fairy tales and real-life experience where, you know, you need to protect yourself. Because the main thing, here's the main thing, motorcycling is awesome. <laughs> motorcycling is fun. It, it, it's, the, it's one of the best things you can do pretty indescribable people have been writing about it for for you know since since they've been in, you know, invented and still none of the words can adequately describe how great this thing is right yeah so that's the most important part and part of that is being realistic about the, the chances that that you take when you're on the road so yeah obviously it, it's only a matter of time before people are adequately protecting themselves you know state after state will apply helmet laws you know they'll nobody nobody has helmet laws and then takes them away once you got them that's kind of it and that's good because of what it what it does to you know the 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 riders in that state you're you're helping people help themselves they don't always make the best choices because they're 
for whatever reason, they, they, they just aren't aware of it. They want to just ride motorcycles. Forget it. But there's an aspect of it where it's like if you're providing a, a product like a motorcycle that can, you know, has 120 horsepower with a rear wheel and insane torque, it's like you can't just let somebody get out there with like shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. You know, it's like something you might have to be like, hey, we know you love it, but it's, you know, if you do this, you're, you have like a one-time shot. And then you're not going to be able to do this ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's bad. It's bad across the board. I don't want to get into the epidemiology of of people getting in motorcycle accidents. But yeah, so it goes without saying. We want we want that to change, and and it and it will. It, you know, the the smarter, more in, enthusiastic people are about this hobby, they make the choice on their own. We're like, yeah, I want to keep doing this, so I'm going to protect myself. You know, more often than not. I mean, in the usually it's, it's sad to say, what I've noticed is that it always takes something scary to happen before people make that that leap. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. So I do have I do have one closing question for you. Mm-hmm. So I did notice that um, when the airbag is inflated, it's kind of yeah. got a whole. There's like a pressure equilibrium. It hate it reaches. Where the cartridge is still gassing out, and then it, the gas, the the vest is venting a little bit. Mm-hmm. My question would be, if I gave this to a beginner rider, and I wanted to make them look like an idiot, where could I glue a rubber chicken squeaker on this vest to shame them <laughs> the most when they inevitably crash? <laughs> Well, I would just say, don't do that. Come on, be nice to the new rider. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't make mistakes on their own. You know, <laughs> it's like they don't need an extra hand in that. Oh, that does bring up a. Actually, Swiggy brings up something interesting that I haven't thought of. Um, do you see there being a market for incorporating these into training programs and things like that? Kind of maybe. Marketing them that way, you know, the vest could be reused again yeah. and again by students to kind of give them a little less of a, a hesitance into getting into learning bikes. Yes. And, you know, we, we do actually work with a lot of training programs, a lot of uh, MSS and, you know, highway safety courses. There's a lot of guys in the East Coast um, who have, uh, you know, track rider schools and things. And, yeah, they, they all have Helite and they're pretty much ambassadors. Um, so they, they, try and provide their students with it with 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 our with our product um you know to create obviously to create good habits early on uh so we do that that is that is definitely some people that we do work with a lot um and it's you know yeah it's it's it can always be better uh it can always be more apparent and it's getting there i mean we've we've had a lot of success in the past two years and it's it's only going to continue in, in that in that realm. So you know, and that means working with everybody. I mean, we work we we not only work with the the rider schools and training programs, but you know, we there are a lot of uh, races that we that we sponsor, as well as other community members. We we always try to work with people that are in the motorcycle community, and it's it's really interesting because that's the motorcycle industry is really unique in that regard it's really i would say almost old school a lot of stuff travels word of mouth i mean paper print is still not not bad when it comes to motorcycling like people people who are into this hobby it seems to be that's that's kind of how they they do things everything okay sometimes i look at it this way 
It's like <clears throat> the way that products enter and exit the motorcycle industry is the way that a lot of Amazon has built its entire uh, empire around, which is referral and okay. friend reference and ratings. You know what I mean? Motorcycle industry has been doing that since day one. I mean, this is, I think Harley Davidson has a lot to, a lot to say about it's it, the peer influence, which, yeah. you know, that equivocates the success of its brand in the United States. So, yeah, it, it's always important to work with those people, and that's really who we, you know, always go for as well. So, I mean, it's a, it's um, I I don't know if, if there is one in Denver where you guys are at, but there probably will be soon. But yeah, it's it only keeps growing our our network of of schools and people that we work with. Okay, and I think about the last question I've got is, I know that all the technology that's in this vest is also basically in all of the full jackets that you sell. Yeah. And there seems to be something, I mean, the idea of like wearing this, this vest and it definitely looks better and more like a normal vest. But when you're out riding, you're where you are wearing this vest over what you're wearing, even though it's not very obtrusive at all. Is, is there something about the sort of very fashion conscious, I got to look cool on my bike American bike culture where maybe the, the full jackets are more popular than the vests or vice versa? Or Do you have any numbers yeah. on that? Well, I will say, I mean, simply because we've been offering the vests from the get-go, that those are the most popular. It's also, like, you know, people have a lot of established gear already, so they, they sometimes they'll just step into the airbag game with getting a vest because it'll work with everything that they have. You know what I mean? It'll work with vintage jackets, their winter riding gear, summer stuff. You know, they can wear it with anything. Um, but, I, man, I get a, plenty of people who come back who are like, I bought a vest, but I want the vintage jacket for summer. And then, but I also want the adventure jacket for winter. Or people are just like, I need an old the jacket. It's time to do it, so I'm going to get this. And they consolidate it into one. So it's, it's not uncommon of one iota to have riders with, with multiple with multiple helite. I got to say, I that. do like the look of the adventure jacket. I do a yeah. lot. I, I don't, and I feel it's like fantastic, the, the old one jacket, is better yeah. than the new one. Even, I don't know. I don't know. It, <laughs> it's a lot for a jacket, but it's worth it too. Uh, it's crazy. Like I, I keep thinking like, Oh, some sort of airbag system has to be my next purchase. But uh, yeah, but there's all this. Well, like, it's, uh, what you said earlier about when you kind of look at at people that you maybe consider competitors is that when you kind of stack it up and you look at the the ingredients that are in the vests and jackets, I mean, we're using 600,000 D Cordura, which is an abrasion-resistant material. And then for leather, you have to get your hands on this stuff. I, I wish I could send you guys more. But, you know, in terms of like well, that's up to you. We'll accept whatever you said this. <laughs> Sorry. It's it's so nice. Like, well, you know, a lot of people that see, like, the, the pictures that we have, you know, uh, uh, everywhere for our adventure stuff is great. And then when you see it in person, it's, it's pretty impressive. A lot, of, a lot of guys will immediately say, oh, man, this is the Badlands jacket. The pockets are even in the same number of pockets. And they're, like, blown away because they're thinking that, oh, if I get it, it's just going to be the airbag. The jacket itself might not be that great. They get it, and they, I mean, time and time again, it's just like, wow, I'm really impressed. This is as good, if not better, than the jacket that I had, you know, 
that was just a jacket that right. cost me a thousand bucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Cool. So, um, I think that covers a lot of what I really wanted to ask you. And I think what Swiggy did too about this jacket. I mean, just kind of covering everything again, it's, the way it functions seems really simple, but when you actually experience it yourself, it's shocking and it's immediately apparent what it yeah. does for you. I I can't think of anything. I mean, when I got finally decided to go finally get a Snell rated full face helmet and full body armor, you know, head to toe, that was a big step up. And this is the only thing that's given me that sort of level of a, of a feeling of increased safety since I did that. Yeah. So I, that I'm glad to hear things like that. Cause I mean, that's, that's what the goal is. You know what I mean? And it's not only the many people feel safe because they've experienced, but when it actually works, you know, when it, like testimony after testimonial, when it does precisely what it says and more that makes it worth getting out of bed. You know? I feel like it's actually like wearing one and having it go off is just the most powerful thing. You know, it's like you need to send these to dealerships with just like 300 cartridges because, you know, every other cartridge is going to sell one of these things. I'm telling you. Yeah. When, when yeah, one yeah. pops off, it's just you go, oh, that's where the money is. Now I see right. it. Right. Five gallons of compressed. CO2 gas and, you know, less than a tenth of a second. That's in a blink of an eye. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hilarious. Okay, so let's see. We've got to – we're running pretty long on time on this episode, but this has been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Zach. And yeah, um, hopefully yeah. we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. And, you know, the next time you got something coming down the line or anything else you want to give us updates with on Helite, we are always – you know, ready to, to talk about it. Cause we're super excited about this technology. And I mean, honestly love promoting it. Like how can you be against something that's so passive yet so crucial in yeah. saving lives? Right. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And it's, and it's great being a part. I thank you. Yeah. All right, cool. So here we go. You can put. Okay. So that was sweet talking with Zach. Again, I mean, I know we've said it just a million times already, but these Helite vests are fucking sweet. And uh, head to our Instagram to see us, like, put up a video of us setting one of these things off because they're crazy, and you need to see that. Because we're definitely going to create a video for that. Um, right. So we're at an insanely long amount of time for this episode. I think we've had to record it in two different parts, but I don't think we really have time for any racing discussion or our how to sound like you know what you want to how to sound like you know what you're talking about segment. So I think we need to end the episode now, but look forward next week to racing discussions and an all uh, an all new how to sound like you know what you're talking about segment and anything else we want to put onto this oh oh i believe we have i'm told we have found our fucking stickers i haven't seen them in person yet though but i'm told they have been found and are on their way to being returned to me so keep keep your ears to the ground for the fucking stickers people uh yeah um 
I think it's a pretty good show. You good with all that? Yep. I think we're ready to wrap it up. Okay, you ready to do this out? Oh wait. So if we're if we're signing out on this episode, I should say remind everyone to leave us ratings and re- ratings and reviews on whatever your service is. Send your emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com and stay safe and stay tuned. Let's run the outro. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. I didn't even see it inflate. It's just all of a sudden it was inflated.